an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Thanks very much, and thank you very much, John, for the invitation. Um, as John mentioned when he invited me, uh, the general topic of the, the conference was one on which he and my father had um, uh, a bit of discussion in the pages of what was uh, then the New Scholasticism. Um, and uh, and it, it, was, it was the case that, that the final word went to, went to John, um, and I think the, it was the fall 1989 issue of the New, New Scholasticism. Um, and it was in the fall of 1989 that my, my father passed away shortly before that, that issue came out. Um, and when I met John uh, you know, several years after that, uh, I, I think you, you said, oh, you know, I hope, no offense, no, it didn't, I certainly didn't mean to do that. And of course, I mean, not only was there none taken, but it was actually, um, and I, I, I hope I told him that at the time, I hope I told him this at the time, it was, it was really actually, it, it was a very good thing for my family. It was a way in which um, my father continued to, to live um, for us. He lived in the, in the, the pages of this, this professional journal and in this discussion that was being carried out. And I feel um, and have felt for the last 20 years in the profession that he continues to live for me by way of the relationships that I have to people who knew him, who worked with him, who discussed things with him. That would include Pat Lee um, as well, among, among other people, uh, Mark Roberts, who was a colleague of my dad. So even just here at Franciscan, for me, um, it, there's, a, there's a great deal of, of uh, personal connection for me um, back, to my, back to my dad, and I always appreciate coming back here. Uh, the paper that I'm going to read has three parts. In the first, I'll look at a question recently discussed by Mark Murphy of the role that God plays as an explainer of morality. I argue for a form of explanation that's different from Mark's, though I wonder whether there is disagreement here or simply difference of emphasis. Uh, I didn't set out to, to talk as much about Mark as I end up doing in this. Uh, I was planning on writing about I mean, what I eventually write about, but his book came through interlibrary loan when I was finishing the paper or, or sort of in the middle of the paper, and I thought, oh, this is really interesting. I started adding and started adding and started adding, and then I got a notice that said that I'd had the book for too long and my interlibrary loan privileges had been revoked. Um, I don't blame Mark for that. In the second part of the paper, I'll ask what difference Christianity, and specifically the idea that the kingdom of heaven is our natural ultimate end, makes to us as practical and moral agents. And I'll argue that it makes both a motivational and a substantive difference. And in the third part, I'll ask about the way that normativity is related to God's communication of normative matters to us. Uh, and I'll do this specifically by asking what kinds of speech acts God engages in in communicating normative matters to us. The standard view is that God communicates to us in commands, and I'll suggest some other possibilities. So part one, God is explainer of morality. What would it mean for morality to be explained by God? On one view, common to many natural law theories, God creates human beings with rational natures. These natures specify the good for human beings. At this point, natural law theory diverges. On one branch, and I'll mention another later in the paper, the goods of human nature, considered through the lens of practical reason, operating without error, provide sufficient justification for moral obligation. So God's explanatory relationship to morality is, as Mark has argued, mediated. God creates human nature, human good, and human reason obligate. Now Mark objects to this line, can I call you Mark? Yes. Mark objects to this line of natural law thinking that it does not give an adequate explanance-centered explanation for morality. A theistic explanance-centered explanation should begin with certain characteristics of the explainer, in this case God, 
and show how those characteristics enter specially into the explanation in a way that cannot be gotten at simply by looking at the explanandum and working backward to whatever is necessary in order to give an adequate explanation. God's nature, put another way, makes certain demands on how we should see his entering into an adequate explanation of morality and moral obligation. Now, Mark objects to what he calls the standard natural law view that God does not really enter into the explanation in the right way at all. Normativity is entirely a function of human nature, human goods, and human reason. God might be responsible for the existence of these things, but that does not, as such, explain the normativity of morality. The relevant realities do, or the normativity of morality. The relevant realities do, not God. As I understand him, Mark's solution to the problem that he's raised is to hold that God explains morality as a kind of final cause. All human goodness is a kind of likeness to and participation in divine goodness. Thus, any normativity into which human goodness enters as an explanation is such that God also enters immediately into the explanation of that normativity. Murphy also holds, Mark also holds that goodness depends upon facts about one's kind, hence God is an immediate but not a complete explainer of normativity. And he labels his view concurrentism, and we'll hear more about it this evening, and sees it as superior to the standard natural law view in its respect for the explanon-centered property of God's sovereignty. I'm interested in this question of the explanon-centered explanation, but in a way that maybe differs from Mark. Maybe he won't disagree with anything I say, but I want to lay out a different way of thinking about this issue, which I think is present in some of the new natural law work that, that Mark criticizes, with a view also to saying something about how morality is explained by God. For me, the difference of emphasis is consequent upon a kind of dissatisfaction with the properties of God picked out by Mark as having the most explanatory relevance. As we'll see, he focuses on God's goodness as such, and also on God's sovereignty, and I'll focus instead on God's personhood and agency. Now, in an earlier essay addressing the question of God and morality, I wrote that, quote, John Finnis's assertion that the content of the natural law can be known, and can be known to oblige, without any, ref any reference to knowledge of God, or awareness of God's will, has sounded stark and even outrageous to some contemporary natural lawyers, end quote. I then identified some ways in which this stark and outrageous claim needed to be needed and received qualification from Finnis, one of which is this, neither human beings nor the natural law would exist without God's having created it. There is thus, I wrote, an ontological dependence of the natural law on God. Now in response to this, an anonymous referee, uh, who I strongly suspect of, I'm right, aren't I? Uh -huh. I've been outed as a referee, uh, and that was happened. Yeah. I, I don't know what the norms of that are, right? There's, 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 it doesn't get the discussion that it should. Um, well, that anonymous referee number one wrote, quote, the fact that the beings governed by natural law do not exist except by divine fiat does not at all show that there is an ontological dependence of the natural law on God, end quote. I mean, it certainly sounds like Mark. Right? Plus, anonymous referee number one pointed out that um, the date of Mark Murphy's book, which was cited, uh, was, was actually 2001, not 2004, so the clues were there. From the standpoint laid out in Mark's book, I think I now see his point. The normativity of the natural law is not, by this observation of dependence, shown to be itself dependent on God. There's thus the same failure of immediacy which Murphy, which Mark complains about in the traditional natural law view. I think that the new natural lawyer can say more than this, and I think that this further bit raises interesting questions about how to think of morality from the first-person agential perspective and about how to construe God's communication to us. 
To make this point, I'll first say something very briefly about the so-called new natural law account of practical reason and morality. It's well known, if not always widely admired, that the new natural law account takes as its starting point the claim that practical reason apprehends a number of basic and incommensurable human goods as the starting points for human action. In deliberating about a multiplicity of options, all promising some good, but in a context of incommensurability, practical reason, in considering only the directiveness of the goods, prescribes not by way of a consequentialist demand of maximization, but by way of a pre prescription to the agent to remain open always and only to the directiveness of the goods, and thus to resist in any way that might deflect from that openness any inclinational orientation at odds with the directiveness of the goods. This norm is a norm of reasonableness, for the complete responsiveness to the integral directiveness of the basic goods is precisely in contrast with the normativity of feeling, inclination, felt preference, sensory appetite, of all that is other than or opposed to practical reason. New natural law theorists have held that this demand of reason is expressed in the first principle of morality, quote, in voluntarily acting for human goods and avoiding what is opposed to them, one ought to choose and otherwise will those and only those possibilities whose willing is compatible with a will toward integral communal fulfillment, end quote. But the demand could perhaps better be expressed as a requirement to, quote, follow reason consistently and all out while doing everything you can to enlarge the field of practical possibilities for the pursuit of human goods. This latter expression leaves out reference to integral communal fulfillment, yet I think it orients us towards that fulfillment. Ultimately, practical reason charges the moral agent with the task of pursuing a dynamic and open-ended state of harmony of all persons in all the goods, in all the goods in which those persons, all of whom are themselves entirely open to the directiveness of the goods, are benefited and never harmed. This open-ended, non-static state of affairs, you could call it integral communal fulfillment, thus emerges as an object and indeed the ultimate object or end of the will, and is now available to guide an agent's will and choices. So the first principle of morality expresses the guidance provided by practical reason's upright orientation, and the ultimate end of man identifies the state of affairs willed by an agent who's guided only by the first principle. From the perspective of natural reason, this end has the status of an ideal, since all rational agents are not co-present to one another. But from the standpoint of revelation, it's possible to identify a state of affairs in which all rational agents, including divine and angelic agents, are co-present to one another and pursuing goods with a mutuality of goodwill. That state of affairs is designated by Germain Griset in accordance with scripture as the kingdom, the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven. But the kingdom, which is for the glory of God, is our true natural ultimate end, and it's to be distinguished from the beatific vision, an end that is not the fulfillment of our human nature, but of the divine nature that we share in as a result of baptism and adoption into God's triune family. The beatific vision is thus part of our ultimate end, but it's not the whole, and the kingdom is not to be reduced to the beatific vision. How is the human-divine relationship best understood in the context of this life and in its implications for natural law, that is, for the project of bringing practical reason to bear on human choice and action in the most fully reasonable way possible? On the basis of the account given so far, God as the source of our existence and of the natural law as our participation in an eternal plan that God has for our, for our ultimate good, a good to be realized in a human way in the kingdom and in a more than human way in the beatific vision, Human agents should see God as both a partner and a guide in their pursuit of a fully reasonable and flourishing life. 
Nothing that is to be done can be done without divine cooperation, and what is to be done has been made clear to human agents in the natural law, itself an instance of divine cooperation, and in Revelation, another instance of divine cooperation. Thus, the entire moral life can be understood by the agent as to be carried out as part of a large scale and from the perspective of, re of Revelation, unending cooperative undertaking with God that manifests his glory. This is the verdict of the agential perspective that I'll discuss at greater length in the next section. If this is true, though, then it appears to give us an answer to the question of how God explains morality in a way that satisfies the demand for immediacy. For morality is, so to speak, the map or plan of our possible relationship with God. And action in accordance with morality, with right reason, is constitutive of that relationship with God. But then we should see morality, the norms that are constitutive of our fulfillment, as related to God in something like the way any map is related to its destination, as a means to an end. I'm here identifying morality from God's personal agential standpoint as a means, a means to his purpose or end, the end of a relationship with human persons that manifests his glory. Moreover, it's the normativity in morality that serves this purpose. For the normativity is a function of the, demand, of the demands of our nature, goods and reason and service to our well-being, and it's for our well-being that, and, it's, and it is our well-being that is itself in a deep way constitutive of the final purpose of God. For God creates us for our own good and is displeased with us only when we act contrary to that good. Our relationship with him is thus built up by reasonable pursuit of our well-being in all its dimensions, and his purposes are thereby served. So the means is constitutively and not externally related to God's purposes. How does this restore immediacy to the natural law picture? Consider the relationship between a final cause understood as a purpose and that which is done for the sake of the purpose. Surely the final purpose is present and immediate in the means. That end gives the means their sense and intelligibility and their goodness. The goodness of the end explains, to varying degrees, the goodness of the means. Now one might object that this is true only where the means are themselves not intrinsically good, as the good of health explains the goodness of medicine. But since health or knowledge or play are goods in themselves, we seem back to the Murphy problem. They do all the work, and God is left having only created the goods without now entering into their goodness or normativity. This leads Mark, as I understand him, to rely upon the image of participation. The normativity and desirability of the goods is a participation in God's goodness, and quote, all moral necessity is the pull of divine goodness specified by the nature of the creatures involved, end quote. And in the same paragraph, Mark says that human goods, quote, demand a response just because they are participations in the divine goodness, end quote. New natural law thinkers agree, as Murphy notes, with his characterization of the relationship between the goodness of the goods and God's goodness as being one of participation. But I think that they would deny a claim that he makes in one paper that, quote, the facts about the good are to be explained just are identical with certain theistic facts, end quote. As Griset writes elsewhere, quote, every participation is really distinct from that in which it participates, end quote. And in the article that Mark cites where they talk about participation, they go on to ask, quote, whether God is not the end of human life in a stronger sense than this, end quote. And this suggests that the participation relationship does not play the deepest possible explanatory role. Speaking for myself, I find Mark's explanation unsatisfying for two reasons. First, though I'm not up to the task of articulating it properly, I'm bothered by the suggestion that it is God's goodness, as it were, shining through the goods 
of human nature that makes them desirable and responseworthy. That does not seem a form of cooperation as regards the goodness of the goods. As regards that, God seems to do all the work, even though specific natures particularize the good. It seems to me that we cannot really say that it is God's goodness that we find desirable in the good of human life or knowledge, since that, God's goodness, is not in fact the actualization of any aspect of our human nature. But perhaps I'm simply misunderstanding what Mark means when he uses terms like participation and exemplification, as when he says, quote, it is not unnatural to think of particular goods as distinct, partial, diverse exemplifications of goodness, end quote, where the goodness in question is identified as God himself. Mark elsewhere glosses participation as resemblance, and maybe this should mitigate my concern. Second, the participation approach does not seem to me to take God's personhood and purposiveness as adequately central to explaining the goodness of acting for any and all of the goods. Indeed, the participation account, whether understood as identity or not, resembles, absent further reflection on God's agency, a kind of Neoplatonic image of God as a source of goodness overflowing like a fountain, in which human goods, excuse me, and not just human goods, participate, and towards which we're drawn as by a magnet. And there's overlap here in some ways with my first concern. There is explanation here, for God's goodness is, as Mark and the New Natural Lawyers agree, the source precisely of the goodness of the goods, but it doesn't seem to me to be the deepest explanation. So consider a different kind of explanation. Play is good for my children, and thus they are benefited by having enjoyable games that they can get involved in. If they want to enjoy a game of Dungeons and Dragons, they can choose to do so for its own sake. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons, Pat Lee has been giving me a hard time about using this example. Um, he doesn't know what Dungeons and Dragons is. He doesn't know that it's commonly abbreviated as D&D, &D, which is what I will call it from now on. It's a game that involves dice and maps and monsters, and that's really all you need to know about it. Um, my kids play it. They don't play basketball. They know as little about basketball as Pat knows about Dungeons and Dragons, unfortunately. Um, when I talk to them about playing, as I, so the next, playing D&D is not really my thing. When I, when I talk to them about it, I always kind of make buck teeth and speak in a squeaky voice and say D&D. &D. And they always say to me, Dad, why do you act like playing D&D &D is something that only geeks do? You used to do this when you were a teenager. The question, unfortunately, answers itself. Um, it's, not really, it's not really my thing now. Um, but I would like to further my relationship with my children by giving them an opportunity to act in a way that relates their play to me. So I buy a dungeon for them. That sounds perverse, but it's not as bad as it sounds. Right? And I offer them the opportunity to play it. Now the new game is a game like any other, and play is a basic good, so it might seem like nothing has changed vis-a-vis -vis the goodness of the game. And one might think that it's solely with a view to their good that I've purchased the game. But this is a mistake. The goodness of this game can't be fully explained without reference to me and my purposes. And because those purposes will be fulfilled in the very playing of the game, they're present in the playing and to the players in a way that seems both immediate and explanatory of goodness from the practical point of view. My kids choose to play this game both for its own sake and in order to please me and thus foster the relationship. The same seems true of the natural law account presented by Griset and Finnis and others. God is present in the law because his purposes are realized in the realization of what the law prescribes. And the limitations of my game analogy serve to make the point even more effectively, for I do not create the category of games or their goodness, but God creates the game and its goodness as part of making possible the realization of his purposes, and he would not create these but for those purposes. 
So God is present in the goodness and normativity of the law insofar as his purposes are also present therein as the ends of that goodness and their normativity. Put another way, when we understand God's creating human goods as governed by his purposes, then the fact of creation really does show ontological dependence of the goodness of those goods on God. Part two, the difference that the kingdom makes. So the previous section articulated an answer to the question, does morality depend on God? That approached the issue from the standpoint of God's agency and purposes. In this section, I look at a different way in which the question can be construed. What difference does God make for us from our first-personal, first agential standpoint on morality's demands? Here's one sub-question of that investigation. What does thinking about the kingdom as our ultimate end do for ethics? I will answer this question first by contrasting Christian ethics as oriented towards the kingdom with Christian ethics as oriented towards the beatific vision, then by contrasting Christian ethics as oriented towards the kingdom with secular ethics, and then finally by discussing the idea of personal vocation. And then I'll turn in the final section to the discussion of divine communication. How does thinking about the kingdom contrast with thinking of the beatific vision as the natural end of man, or ultimate end of man? I, along with my new natural law colleagues and friends, think that the teaching that the beatific vision is the ultimate end has not played a very salutary role in Christian ethics. That understanding is both otherworldly in its focus and unbodily in at least its emphasis. St. Thomas attempted to rescue the view from the second of these problems by describing the resurrection of the body as the bene essay of beatitude, while also holding that the vision of the divine satisfied all desires. But we're bodily beings, as well as social beings, and it's implausible to think that our fulfillment as humans is impossible or is possible apart from the well-being of our bodies and our relations with others. And the idea of a perfect fulfillment that can be even more perfected seems not entirely coherent. Finally, from an ordinary and non-philosophical agent's perspective, a perspective shared by me um, at about 5 o'clock every night up until bedtime, the beatific vision alone just doesn't seem that attractive. As for the otherworldliness, in extreme formulations, concern with the beatific vision alone tends to reduce this life to having a mere instrumental significance. Moreover, a kind of legalism about the law is potentially encouraged insofar as what matters is simply avoiding mortal sins so as to be able to enjoy the beatific vision. But in light of Revelation, the new natural law theorists see the work of this life as itself actively preparing the materials for the kingdom, a view that does not encourage legalism, but instead an active and creative effort through one's intention of the kingdom to do good works, build and maintain ever-deepening relationships with all persons, and in general to begin now imperfectly what will be the eternal task of, perf of perfecting of the communion of Christ, angels, and men in the goods which are common to these beings. As to the contrast with secular ethics, I'll put aside those ethical views constructed in outright rejection of the prescriptions of the natural law, or even those simply in significant error, whether they can be fully embraced by self-aware agents, and whether, if so, they could sustain a culture for very long seem to me dubious. But natural lawyers typically describe the prescriptions of the natural law as generally available to be known by all agents, even in the absence of a knowledge of God's existence or will. So let's hypothesize the existence of an agent of good understanding and will, who's nevertheless unaware of the gospel, perhaps because he or she lives prior to the coming of the good news. This agent can recognize the directiveness of the basic goods and can further recognize the need to will unconditionally as directed by those goods. He can, that is to say, come to a pretty good grasp of the demands of morality. But while this agent can, and let us assume does, will the goods, and can commit himself to an upright life, it's difficult to see how this agent, unless he's a Socrates or some similar rarity, can be consistently motivated to ask, act as reason demands 
in those circumstances in which the cost of so acting is, say, his death or the death of his loved ones or massive social ostracization or abandonment by his friends or the destruction of his community. Finnis notes in the closing pages of Natural Law and Natural Rights that our participation in the goods in this life is doomed to failure, and this seems likely to have practical consequences for our hypothetical agent. In fact, I think the motivational limitations created by the passing of earthly goods can hardly be overcome without seeing oneself as in a cooperative relationship with the divine creator. And it appears that Socrates and Plato both saw themselves this way. And so Socrates had the courage to resist the 30 tyrants when they insisted that he arrest and bring to certain destruction Leon. Even he, Socrates, surely expected to be killed as a result. But he's the exception. All non-Christian thinkers are tempted, as are many Christian thinkers as well, by the awareness of the passing of human goods to elevate certain aspects of achievable human good to the status of an absolute. Thus, most non-Christians are strongly tempted to rationalize an acceptance of the view that it's better that one man die than that the community be destroyed. And the doctrine of the kingdom makes a further difference here, for the goods in view of which we cooperate with God are not destined to fade away on this view, so that not only a Socrates, but more modestly heroic individuals can also find the strength they need to act as they ought. A further difference from the agential standpoint is this. With the kingdom in view, and with cooperation with God in the building up of the kingdom as an architectonic end, all who seek first the kingdom have a fundamentally changed structure of practical reason and practical willing. For every course of deliberation and every choice in action terminates ultimately with reference in the agent's intention of that kingdom. In many particular cases, this will not change the nature of the object of the act, but an action is what it is by its intention, which encompasses both end and object. So a change in the ultimate end willed by an agent means that agents who will the kingdom perform different acts with each choice they make than agents who do not will the kingdom. And of course, agents could not do this without knowledge of the kingdom, knowledge only available through revelation. So knowledge of the kingdom makes a difference of content for a Christian's ethical reflections. Seek first the kingdom is a moral norm known only to Christians. A final point about the difference God makes from an agent's first-person perspective is this. The demands of the kingdom are, in each individual's life, specified in the form of a personal vocation, a life to which that individual is uniquely called, the details of which descend down to the extremely particular. What, from the standpoint of the natural law, would be an underdetermined matter for choice is, from the standpoint of personal vocation, a situation for calling for discernment, for attention to the signs which God has made available for one to know precisely what God wishes of one at this time and in this place. The idea of personal vocation in this sense goes well beyond the idea of a rational plan of life, and thus beyond what the natural law prescribes in the absence of revelation, and introduces something new into the practical life of believing agents, something that we could say is rooted in God's will and thus generates the need to discern that will. This marks a significant difference in the moral life that a specifically Christian understanding of God makes. Part three, final part, divine commands. One might ask about all of this, where do God's commandments enter into this picture? Divine commands are thought necessary by many for an explanation of moral obligation. While we can know the content of the natural law through our understanding of the goods and reasons relation to them, there is a residue of obligatory force that can only be explained by God's commanding the precepts of the natural law. How we know the precepts of the natural law as commanded is a matter for discussion. Perhaps God makes known their imperatival character through the verdicts of conscience, perhaps in some other way. 
The view that the precepts of the natural law are commanded can be complemented by three further loci of divine command. First, God, recognizing epistemic and motivational deficiencies in human beings vis-a-vis -vis the natural law, provides as a supplement to the natural law revelation of the content of the law. That revelation is typically understood to be in the form of commands. Second, the body of human beings being the body of human beings preparing material for the kingdom in cooperation with Jesus is God's church. As a corporate body with a particular mission, this body must be constituted and directed by God's authoritative acts. So God's commands could be seen as essential to the existence of this corporate body, as the positive law is essential to the existence of a regime. And third, there is the domain of personal vocation. In addition to commands given to his church, God might give personal commands to individuals for the sake of directing them in their vocational paths. One reason that morality might seem to require supplementation by divine commands is precisely the divide between the moral life and the ultimate end that, among other things, the picture of the beatific vision is the ultimate end encourages. But the image of the kingdom, the material for which is being prepared here and now by acts that are fully open to human goods, seems to me to discourage that thought. Commands are not needed to bridge the divide between morality and our heavenly fulfillment. For there's a kind of continuity between the two, even though heavenly fulfillment transcends anything that's available to us in this life. A second reason might be the Kantian idea that moral obligation or necessity must be understood as being unconditioned. This idea reflects something true, I think, namely the absolute status of some norms as never to be violated. But it's an error if it takes it to be the case that the explanation of obligation is not teleological. It is reason's directiveness towards the good and the goods that provides the necessity characteristic of obligation. So morality, the natural law, should not be understood as involving divine commands. Now Mark raises an additional issue in his book that I can't here adequately address but want to raise just because I thought, again, it was interesting, so I'll throw that in. Uh, he thinks that the natural law cannot even be law on Aquinas' account because for Aquinas, law is a command, and a command is a speech act but the promulgation of the natural law is not accomplished by any speech act on God's part. Still, the law is communicated by God to man, and Finnis argues that this is what is really central to Aquinas' understanding of why the natural law is law. He writes, quote, the central case of law is an appeal to the mind, the choice, the moral strength, and the love of those subject to the law, end quote. Not only does this give reason to think that the natural law really is law, on Aquinas' view of law. It also, I want to suggest below, gives us some reasons to resist the temptation to understand all communication of the law, even those which, more obviously than the natural law, are accomplished by divine speech, speech acts as commands. So in conclusion, let's consider those speech acts by which God communicates the law for those who are in doubt through revelation, those speech acts by which he communicates the norms for the guidance of the church, and those speech acts by which he communicates to individuals that to which they're vocationally called. I find myself in a perplexity, the gist of which can be summarized as follows. Why must God's authoritative and directive speech acts in these three domains be thought of as commands or imperatives? Well, what are the other options? One might think that commands just are the form of speech act by which an authority directs, an, uh, directs as an authority. But I have authority over my children. And while I sometimes command them, sometimes I direct without command. I say, for instance, why don't we do it this way? Or it would please me if we were to do it this way. Or even I've decided that we'll do it this way. Perhaps these are disguised commands. But I want to raise the possibility that at least some of them are authoritative invitations. 
I have authority, and it's not just the authority of expertise. My decisions constitute, in some cases, what will now be the common way, and my announcement of that common way is thus an act of my authority. But I take myself not to be commanding the way, but announcing it as an available option for those in the family who wish, in the choice itself, to continue their cooperation with me as the head of our merry little band and to play their part in that band. In so acting, I announce no external sanction for those who fail to comply, as I do on other occasions when I tell my children that they must do X or suffer some punishment. But there is an internal sanction built in, that of failing to act A, in cooperation with me, and B, in accordance with the common way, which is partly constitutive of our existence as a family. Because following my will is necessary to avoid the internal sanction, we can further speak of the necessity, or virtue, of obedience for members of my family. It seems to me that this is a good way of thinking about God's authoritative speech acts where our vocation is concerned, as even the word suggests. God calls Smith to act in a certain way. And this really is an act of authority because it's God's choice that's made this to be the way for Smith as opposed to, be, as opposed to the way for Jones. The claims about sanctions and obedience seem right here too. So there seems to be divine and authoritative, there seems to be a divine and authoritative invitation or proposal, but not necessarily a command. What of the first case, where God supplements the natural law with his commands? The precepts of the natural law are obligatory, I hold, not because they're commanded, but because they're necessary for our well-being with one another and with God. What is added by God's commanding them? It's a question that has already come up in some of the sessions today. For one thing, we now know that we'll be separated from God if we willingly disobey the precepts of the natural law, and this is undesirable. So an obligation to obedience is superadded to the obligations internal to the natural law itself. But how is God's revelation of precepts of the natural law better understood here as a divine commanding rather than, say, a divine reminding? One might say, because God's commands are backed by the threat of coercive sanction, the threat of hell. However, a more plausible view is that hell is the separation of the sinning self from God's presence. So hell is not an imposed punishment, and threats about hell are actually warnings. In the commandments, God reminds us what the natural law is and what the intrinsic consequences of failure in the natural law are. And God, of course, also invites in his revelation of the natural law, for as with my game of Dungeons and Dragons, he extends an opportunity to us, his children, to do what is for our good also so as to be friends with him and manifest his glory. Perhaps, as Kant holds, we must, as beings whose will is not holy, experience the law as command. Yet this does not entail that the speech act itself is a command. And in, in thinking about this particular point, I have children who experience my invitations as commands. Um, it's not how it should be, but it is how, how they are from time to time. Perhaps this is a misunderstanding on our part of the consequences of our fallen nature, thinking that they must be commands. Commandment seems a deeply and perhaps primarily political concept. So it seems to play its primary role in the politics of the Old Testament where God commands, where God's commands, besides reminding of the natural law, also constitute his chosen people and in the, in, the, in the ecclesiology of the new, where God's commands constitute his church as a corporate body. This seems to me a plausible place to think that God really does issue commands, yet the language of covenant in the Old Testament and the language of Christ to his disciples after the washing of the feet in the new also push me in the direction of thinking of these, as, of these authoritative divine speech acts as also more like divine invitations to, cooperate, to, to cooperation, despite the similarity of the divine law here to human positive law. All language about God is analogical, 
and tells us about our relationship to God rather than about God himself. But God has endorsed a particular way of thinking about our relationship to him, one that should inform our conception of his communication to us. That special way of relating is that of our relationship to a father. Now it's true that fathers relate to their children by way of command, but it's also true, I think, that in thinking of our most appropriate uses of parental authority, commanding is not really central. And in many cases, again, at least in my experience, the resort to command is a result of failure, not just on the part of my children, but often enough of me. God is also the giver of the law, and this in turn prompts us to think of his communications to us as commands. But as the quotation from Finnis earlier at least suggests, we can think even of the law as, in its focal instance, a communication of something best understood as a as proposed, to use Aquinas's word. Divine law is but, here's, here's Aquinas, divine law is but a rational plan proposed by God to man. That human lawgivers often propose in the language of command might again be a deficiency rather than an essential mark. So perhaps what I'm really trying to articulate is this, that our view of God's communication of the law, divine, natural, and let's call it personal, has perhaps been somewhat deformed by our relying on too close an analogy to the imperatival form of speech act associated with human positive law and to the form of speech act associated with imperfect human fathers of intransigent children. Perhaps in so doing, we miss out on a crucial aspect of God's communication to us, its abiding love and patience, and in the process miss out on something that we could learn also about communication in our own lives, both familial and political. Thank you. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville, faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.